Welcome to the Unveiled Podcast. My name is Peg Peters. I'm your host. This is a podcast that explores the intersection of psychedelics and spirituality. And today we have a really exciting guest on. Uh, it's author Rachel Harris, PhD. She's the author of Swimming in the Sacred, Wisdom from the Psychedelic Underground. She's also author of Listening to Ayahuasca. And she's a psychologist who's been in private practice for over 40 years. She spent 10 years in academic research where she published more than 40 scientific studies in peer-reviewed journals, received a National Institute of Health New Investigators Award. And Rachel splits her time between an island in Maine, where she's now at, and in San Francisco Bay Area. And you can check her out at swimminginthesacred.com. And she's on our podcast today. Rachel, thank you so much for coming on Unveiled today. I'm really excited to have a great conversation with you. How are you doing today? Thank you, Peg. I'm really glad to meet you. Yeah. So I want to just kind of uh, dive straight into this book because uh, to me, it uh, it's a voice uh, that's, it, it's almost like a voice in the wilderness. That's how I kind of saw this. That's how I feel. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Thank you. Uh, so, uh, I mean, I when I came across this book, it was like I was desperate to consume it because you, the premise of the book, which I'll set up, uh, really hit a felt need for me. So I'm, uh, my wife and I are, 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 we're part of an organization that is really looking to uh, create a sustainable psychedelic access for people that need it in group container and group models. Uh, and all the conferences I go to and books I read all seem to be coming at it from a very medical model, right? Two therapists, uh, kind of very research driven. Uh, and yet what I'm finding uh, is that there's so many questions that are not being answered by the typical the conversations I get out of maps or conferences I go to. I have a whole bunch of questions that no one's, a no one's asking and no one's answering. And finally, I came across a book like yours. And I said, oh, Rachel is speaking to these underground therapists, all women, which is right. a really important factor because, uh, and we'll talk about that in a second, all these women who have had at least a decade, probably 20 years of underground psychedelic work. Oh, no, no. At no least more. 20, 20, at least 20 years was my criteria. Wow. And most of them had 30 or 40 years experience. They have the most experience in the Western culture. Yeah. Yeah. And so when I heard that, I just sat forward and said, Rachel, you have done a beautiful, beautiful job of, of first of all, can, can pulling them they, all together. They all they obviously didn't know each other necessarily. Uh, some of them knew. But you pulled these stories together and you began to theme them in chapters that really uh, started to answer questions that I had because I'm working in this realm and no one's no one's talking about I like what's happening in an active session, for instance. How do we clear the energy? energies of those that are holding space. No one's talking about that. So Rachel, yeah. let's have a great conversation over the next hour. How did you first come up with this idea of doing this book? Well, it, it did grow out of the listening to ayahuasca book <clears throat> because, you know, when that book came out, it kind of was an, it introduced me to a number of the underground women. And I sort of came from, you know, I was around the Bay Area in the late 1960s. So I was in many of the same places these women were. I just went a different path. I have a different skill set. I'm not as brave as they are, bottom mm -hmm. line. And um, But there was a simpatico, and they began talking to me, one here and one there. And so the book grew out of those relationships. Mm. Yeah, you talk, you, you talk. I, sorry. Go ahead. What I say is the women are 
at least doubly silenced. They're silenced because they're women mm. and they're silenced because they're working underground. Yep, yep, yep. You yep. know what? Most of them are over 60, so they're mm. also silenced because they're elders. Mm -hmm. I mean, everybody respects elders, but people don't often want to listen to them. Yeah, yeah. You know, you rightly point out, I, I've heard this in your podcast and on your book, uh, in a podcast you did, where you looked at a recent, you know, tribute book to Stan Groff, who's, you know, one oh. of the fathers of psychedelics, kind of grandfathers. And here you have 50 authors. Only two are, are female, and one of them is a co-author. And it was, I mean, it's just such an example of, you know, 48 men are talking from a patriarch. <laughs> and again, I know these men are good men. They want to do good. But it, it, it's bracketing out an entire volume of knowledge from these female guides that we just don't have access to. And you are starting to get us access to it. And you know what? It's when people say, well, I couldn't find women. Well, look harder. You can find women. You can even find the underground women. Mm, yeah, no, I, I agree. Asking around. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, you know, I just hosted uh, on Wednesday, I hosted a, a roundtable discussion with uh, what I what I was looking for um, is the top researchers or the top thinkers on group work and psychedelics. Now, uh -huh. by the time I was done, it was five women and, and, and I was hosting it. It was all women. Talking about wow. group work and psychedelics, right. Rosalind Watts, uh, a lady named Dr. Shannon Dames from Vancouver Island University and others. But it was Fabulous. not lost on me that group work, which is really moving away from the idea of the ego of the therapist. And you're, you're kind of now kind of coming in as a facilitator of a group process is a very different skill set than I'm the expert research therapist that gets to have all the answers. And that seems yeah. to be more feminine in nature. That's how it that's, showed up in this conversation, at least. That's great. I, I can't wait to hear that. That's great. Yeah. So, yeah. So you you obviously, you know, you talk about in your 20s or being around the Esalen uh, Institute, uh, being uh, right. going to Big Sur and having these great conversations. But you went into the academy. You went into uh, private practice and more therapy realm uh, and versus like the psychedelics. Yes. Well, psychedelics were by then illegal and there was no opportunity to study them. So, and I was just in my early mid twenties. I, I went to Esalen when I was 21. Mm. So I was just, you know, my timing was off. It was too early. And I, I was in the residential program. I lived there on the staff for a couple of years. And then, you know, by the time I was ready to go to graduate school, there, there the grad, the, the interesting graduate programs had not yet been created. Mm. So, and that's part of what pushed me into research because that I was well suited to it. And that was a way to get out from under the clinical mm. supervision. Yeah, <laughs> right, right, right. So and this must, there, there must be, I mean, I, I'm getting from you, Rachel, and I'll just get this tone from the book. There was a level of excitement for you. As, and as I'm reading these pages, I felt like you were like, this is this is what I've been looking for, kind of like it's like you found something really that 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 it that kind of enlivened you as you began to talk with these individuals. Because you also talk about your trips, you talk about your MDMA and your ketamine experiences in the book, and how these guides really did something different than the typical researchers do in in these active sessions. Yes. Yeah, so the 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 elder I went to for uh, the MDMA journey, it was trained by Native American, uh, her adopted grandfather. Mm. And so she used herbs and scents in, and did a clearing. She cleared my energy. Mm. 
in my body, in my energy field for about an hour. That's, I've never had that done before like that. It was, right. you know, I was coming down, it was the end of a, a trip and it was just really wonderful. And that's one of the advantages of um, working with someone with this depth of experience and apprenticeship. Yeah. You know, I, so let's even start with that. Like, you know, you just threw that out like, oh, of course, you know, she did this hour long clearing right now. I know what you mean, but many miss listeners who are kind of steeped in, let's say, uh, you know, Johns Hopkins research and the clinical trials of psychedelics will have no clue what you're talking about when oh, you say you. an elder, uh, you know, said, we're going to have to do some clearing here because we're not just doing psychology in the, in the Western framework. We're doing energetic, somatic work deep in the body. And that's a very different skill set than, hey, I'm a really good clinical therapist. Well said, even though I'm a very good clinical therapist, that was very well said. And one of the things I had to learn just starting out interviewing was these women were not therapists. Mm. One or two might have a practice and, and a degree and a license, but as a group, they were not therapists and they were really um, high priestesses. And we don't have a place in our culture for psychedelic priestesses, yeah. but that's really what they are working in a sacred context. And they have spent, most of them, especially this woman, did real uh, years of apprenticeship so um when she worked with clearing she had shamanic tools that had been given her by her native mm -hmm. american grandfather so she had you know a special fan made of eagle feathers and she had different herbs and and she did you were exactly right is it was a somatic energetic clearing Right. And I've had people wave things around me, you know, for a few minutes to clear my aura or whatever. This was an hour. Hmm. And so there's sort of like these layers that were coming out of me and she was clearing out of the room. And, you know, one of one of one one of the women, this is a different woman than the one mm -hmm. who did that session with me, said, uh, so I'll quote her. So you had a mystical experience. So what? <laughs> until, you, until you learn to work with energy in your life mm -hmm. and, and so and so this woman woman working on me was actually working with the energy and that's what comes out of years of being with someone who's um an indigenous elder yeah. someone who's been working for many years um in, this, in a lineage like you know that's one lineage, of the you know you. and that's and that's a big thing right now is to understand that these medicines don't just come, you know, from Johns Hopkins. <laughs> these medicines no. come out of lineages of thousands of years of use. And we, we want to just somehow rip them out of that context and now kind of put them into our Western medical model and have a doctor prescribe them, right? I mean, we are facing that. I'm in Canada and I'm working on clinical trials with Health Canada with these substances. And yet what I'm finding is their knowledge, they're just bureaucrats in a health system. They have no understanding of what we are trying to say, which is we need to have these types of, uh, you know, uh, people to help uh, bring uh, like indigenous wisdom into this work. They're like, what are you talking about? Why do you need an indigenous person there? And I'm like, these medicines are not a Tylenol that you just give someone. These are plants, plant medicines that come from right. a tradition. Well, and that's the other thing. The women 
were deeply rooted. I'm using that word mm -hmm. <laughs> um, purposely. They were deeply rooted in their relationship with the plants. Mm -hmm. And I've, you know, I, I've spoken to the male underground practitioners too, who are in lineages and, and they didn't seem to have the same intuitive depth of connection mm. to the plant spirits and the plant teachers. And I felt like that was really important. And, and of course, I talk about that in the listening to ayahuasca book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that the women are very attuned and they know they know they have the plants in their bodies. They know in yeah. their bones. Yeah. And may maybe we'll start with, you know, uh, some of the similarities and the themes that came up and I'll, maybe I'll pull up two or three and then you can kind of riff on them a bit, Rachel. You know, one of the ones, your second chapter, which is all visions from childhood, it, which is really around there's this interesting connection that you discovered that a lot of these women had early, like we're talking five-year-olds, six, seven, eight years old, having visions, connections to the divine. Um, you know, it reminded me of, uh, you know, if you listen to, if you read any of the biography of like Joan of Arc, right, who has these mystical experiences with the divine at an early age. Uh, right. And you were tracking saying a lot of these women have this engagement with the divine from a very early young age that gets cultivated yeah. over a lifetime. Can you talk yeah. about that a bit? Well, let me take a wild guess. I bet you do too. Yeah. Okay. And, yeah. and I, and also, I, I also had early experiences and mm -hmm. I sort of, and the women also, you know, we all sort of valued inter internally these experiences because who do you talk to? Yeah. And, and often people don't want to talk about these things or, or adults tell children, you know, just don't bother about that. But, you know, they've guided me. These early experiences have guided me and I've followed them and I searched them. Otherwise, how did I end up at Esalen in 1968, straight out of college? Right. I was mm. in college on the East Coast. Mm. I was looking, I was searching. And so that's mm. how I, I found myself there in the residential so, program. And it's true for these women too. Mm. And, you know, mm. if you go back and kind of follow almost like stepping stones, your own early mystical spiritual experiences they're the kind of the guiding light in an unfolding life you know it's so beautifully said rachel and i love that you even you know brought it back to me personally because you know even as you have you as you said that i'm um like part of my own journey with psychedelics has been kind of re-embracing my own spiritual yeah. uh, journey as a child and uh it it you know, I grew up in a very evangelical, you know, uh, Protestant home. And so my visions of God were very uh, curated for me, right? But I had these personal experiences as a child that were different, that were outside of kind of the tradition that was handed to me, and I didn't know what to do with them. And right. so I just kind of pushed them down. And then I became an ordained minister and thought that maybe this is going to be, you know, my connection to the divine. And I became a pastor and taught and taught in university, but never really found that deep, early longing, the connection I had as a child until I had my first psychedelic experience seven years ago. You know, so here I am in my 50s and I had this in my 40s. It wasn't until my 40s when I encountered psilocybin for the first time that I had this aha moment of this is what I've been longing for my entire yeah. life. Longing, longing, longing for. my entire life, Rachel. And then it, it all of a sudden it felt like I'd come home. And, and it was bigger than Christianity. 
it was bigger than Protestant framing that I had been given. But it it didn't, you know, I also just say this is I'm learning now to find within the Christian tradition, these uh, ways of being that are in alignment with these, what I'm, you know, these downloads that I'm getting from my psychedelic, uh, you know, plant medicine work. So very interesting stuff that's going on in me. Well, that's, that's a perfect description of what integration is. Mm, wow. That, that, yes, that you, you bring your experience from the journeys, from the medicine journeys back into your life. And it changes, it changes your, his, your past history. It yeah. changes it, and, and you create something new. And mm. that's what integration really is. It's not just a few sessions of debriefing. Right, 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 <laughs> sorry, right. Sorry. Uh, I, it, that's it, your chapter seven. What the hell is integration anyway? <laughs> yes, exactly. But you just gave this beautiful description of it, how how you're you're reweaving your life hmm. and coming up with a whole other um, stage of life and 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 opportunity in life and how it's changed your world and 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 building on what you had before, but yeah. in a totally different way. Yeah, and I think that's what's happening is like rather, I, you know, I think for many years I was just tearing down, deconstructing my Christianity and in essence, throwing it out and having to walk away. And for probably a decade, I just kind of had left it and didn't even want to, exp- I never even would tell people that I was, you know, had been a pastor. Like it was that embarrassed by kind of the patriarchy and all that had happened, mm-hmm. you know, as part of my own Christian past, but it's been psychedelics and my work with entheogens that have drawn me back, not to be embarrassed by my connection with the divine, but to integrate that into my life and my family and my, you know, how I live in the world. Yes. And that's, that's a wonderful opportunity to weave your past history into your future life Mm. in a whole different way you're very lucky. And, and that's what into, that's a beautiful example of a live integration, Mm. a living living process. Oh, thank you. Um, You talk about, uh, you know, these guides, you talk about them being guided from unseen, you know, others. Uh, And I just want to kind of dive into that chapter because this is um, again, this is deeply spiritual work. And I think one of the things that I get from your book is that you know, and you put it right in the title, swimming in the sacred. And so yeah. there is right up, you know, right off at the at the get go, you're saying we cannot talk about these medicines and these lineages and this transforming power of these entheogens without talking about the sacred, without talking about spirituality. And yet, this is where you know a lot of the research doesn't have language for it in the psychology realm, and so they don't know what to do with it, right? And even as recently as, you know, uh, um, I think it was a couple weeks ago, uh, this was, um, there was a conversation I was hearing, um, and there was a couple of gentlemen from Johns Hopkins talking about their, the legacy that they really want to leave, which is we need to develop kind of a, a place where we can talk about spirituality outside of just typical religion. And we cannot bracket spirituality out of these conversations. So why, you know, for you, uh, why, is, why was that the idea of spirituality and the sacred so vital in, in, in all in what they talked about, what these, these guides talked about? You know, what, one of the underground, the, well, I, this one is the eldest of the elders. So she's now pushing 90. Mm. She trained in the early 60s with uh, Leo Zeth. 
and, and a number of she had other trainings too but but it's leo zeff's you're you're nodding your head the secret chief yeah, re yeah. revealed that's the one book i recommend there's a lot of good information in that and so she's been working all these years and she said even if these medicines become legal i would continue to work underground because that's where the sacred container is wow. so and we have to learn as a culture how to create space for these that's not illegal <laughs> that's right. that's skillful and and authentic and um and sacred and the the phrase swimming in the sacred comes from maria sabina the mexican curandera yeah. Yeah. right she would sing during the psilocybin ceremonies and she would sing i am a woman who swims in the sacred wow that's yeah. beautiful. And That's beautiful. It's a perfect description of these women. Mm. You you had this line uh, that really just hit me uh, as you 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 said um, in in conversation and talking about these guides from unseen forces. Yeah, you know how these women draw from their personal relationship with the divine at some level, with the plant or whether it's you know God, source, whatever. You you but you kind of define that by saying one of the questions you had was. How many generations do you have to go back to find a healthy maternal figure? I, I was really interested in that line. Is that a Can, tough question? Yeah, because I, 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 you know, that really hit me and I thought, whoa, that's a profound question to ask um, about the, your lineage, right? About where do we find healthy maternal figures in our lineage that will really determine where our kind of where we're at right? Because we really need healthy maternal figures in order to be grounded and attached properly. Right. And you know, when I, I, I went, it, when I was clarifying the early childhood spiritual experiences, I had to go back, you know, I didn't just do one interview, I went back and called them women again and met with them again, different ones. And this one woman, again, this is the eldest of the elders, I asked her, did you have spiritual experiences as a child? And she said, No, I really didn't. And then she begins describing this idyllic, wonderful childhood where her mother was a, a trained massage therapist. Her grandmother healed with herbs or something mm. like that. I mean, she was in the middle of it. Mm. And she just it just didn't register that this was this spiritual setting where she was well-loved. She said she could go anywhere in the neighborhood and everybody knew her and she was always safe. I mean, it was a you know, as a therapist for 40 years, yeah. I have not heard such a wonderful childhood right. story. Right. So she yeah. didn't have those, she didn't have what we were referring to as spiritual experiences, mm. but she grew out of this spiritual um, community. It was just mm. lovely to hear her talk. Mm. And, and so there it was. And, and, to, and to top it off, there was, I think, an uncle who had a, a funeral parlor so the children mm. would play in the funeral mm. parlor. So there she was encountering death yeah. in a lighthearted way is just part of life. I mean, the whole, her whole description of her childhood mm. just reeked of mm. a spiritual setting preparing right. her for this work. Right, right. right. Yeah. So you, you, you can get that. Yeah, you can, you, you can see that, that kind of level of, of deep spiritual engagement in these, in these women that are now holding these, you know, these spaces um underground yes 
but yet in in a in a lineage in a in a uh, in decades of of history and experience that we really need desperately right now you know um you know we're what we're you know the questions that i'm having rachel are are like again i'll be really honest because they're kind of they're quite personal like i'm like what do you do in when you're in an altered state with you know you have guides and therapists in the room but you have eight people experiencing you know an altered state experience with psilocybin and you're and you talk about a process of tracking right and uh this idea of emotional tracking during the altered state that these women have the ability to do so it's not just about giving a medicine putting the eye shades no. and headphones on and we'll we'll talk to you in five hours because no. you know we'll almost put you in a sealed box which is what research is doing right now they're i mean you know they're they're they prep them for three sessions and then give them kind of a real private individual experience but you're saying, no, these, these women are doing it very different, a lot of times in community, a lot of times in nature. Uh, and, and yet they, you, you have this term that you called tracking and you compared it to wilderness guides that can track and see the, see the footprints in the sand of, a, of an animal or a, a broken twig. And they have, they're so attuned to the energetic realities of the forest that they know what's going on. And you're saying these women have cultivated that skill in these energetically and in emotional realms to track what's happening in a person. Uh, can you unpack that for me? Well, I, I say they know the territory. They worked on themselves using these medicines. And uh, they did that before they started working with other people. So they really, they spent, you know, the first couple of years working on themselves. Uh, some had therapy as part of the process, some didn't. But they had experience, I say, with all the medicines at all dosages. Hmm. So they really know the territory. And the medicines take you to different different states, yeah. different worlds, mm -hmm. um, not always the same, but in general, the medicines are different. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and they're very, there's a very high level of integrity. So I spent an afternoon with one woman. And um, as I was leaving, it was late afternoon, not quite into mm -hmm. twilight, you know, sunset. And um, she said, Well, now I'm going to drink the medicine that I'm going to serve tomorrow night. Mm. And I said, well, you've had, you know, a million ayahuasca ceremonies. Why are you drinking ayahuasca, you know, before you serve it? She said, this is a different batch. And I don't know this batch, you know, because it's made differently. Right, so right, different. right, These right. Plants, yeah. They're boiled differently. And so she wanted to have her own experience of this medicine before she served it to others. Hmm. And that's, that level of integrity is how, how you learn the territory. Hmm. So she, she would know the next night out of her own experience where people were likely to go with that medicine. Wow. That's so like, again, such a different approach uh, than, you know, than, than typically we hear of in kind of Western science, right? That first of all, I mean, I mean, people are having, I, I, in this session we did on, on Wednesday with this group work, and I'll send you the link, you know, one of the questions that came up was, well, as a guide, like, do I have to actually have an experience with medicine? Like, can't I just, you know, give it to my clients? And it was like, it was all <laughs> I could do to just not, you know, fall off my chair of like, right. you were right. in the wrong field, if that's even a question. I mean, I, I mean, that sounds awful, but like, this is deeply personal and experience experiential that the guides need to know this territory 
They need yeah. to have experienced it. And you're saying for years, not be not like, hey, I get to be a guru because I went to a, a two week training course, you know, in Peru. Now I'm a guru. Right. I mean, that is that's going to be happening. And I see it happening all the time. Uh, and, you know, Dr. Rosalind Watts, as a, a friend of mine, a researcher, she says those are that's bamboo. Right. Small roots grow real fast. Right. We need oak trees. <laughs> deep deep roots that have grown over decades and we just don't have them but you are introducing us to some of them well let, let me give you two two instances one one instance you know people would come up to me at conferences and say i i you know in in i've had a couple i've done a couple ceremonies with grandmother ayahuasca and she's telling me i should lead ceremonies oh yeah <laughs> And that's at the point where I want to tear my hair out. Yeah. And I took this story back to one of the elders uh, who I interviewed. And she said, the, the answer is when you hear that, you, when you hear that, what it means is you should begin to study ayahuasca, oh, not nice. begin to serve it and lead groups. Right. That's the very beginning invitation you know, spend six or seven years with me, and then you can go lead group. Right, right. An another example is one of the women I interviewed was, now she was really trained traditionally by an, indig an indigenous shaman in Peru. And after six years or so, he said, you're ready to sing in ceremony. Hmm. And she said, no, I'm not. Hmm. And so she sat right next to him and he sang and she sang a nanosecond behind him mm. and blend, you know, blended in. And then they, she could sit right at his elbow is what I yeah. say. Yeah. And then they could say, did you see that? Did you see what happened after we sang that? What's happening there? And that's what an apprenticeship looks like. Wow. She did that for a year and then she started singing. And right. that was 25 years ago. Wow. Yeah. And no, we just okay. don't, you know, we just don't have that. We just don't have that in the West. We, we don't just have, don't have any of that have, kind of lineage. No, right. No. And, and we don't have the time. We can't tell the, the current therapist, you know, yeah, wait 20 years. years. No, we can't right. do that. And, so, and so this is for me, this is uh, some of the best ways to, to begin to start educating, our, you know, the therapists and facilitators that are wanting to do this work. Can we at least start studying and learning from these, which is why your book comes in at a perfect time, because it's saying, hey, here's a resource for you to start asking these types of questions. Are you in relationship with the medicine? You know, have you had visions uh, of, of the divine from a childhood? You know, what is your current apprenticeship practice? Who are your elders? I mean, these are the kinds right. of questions that you right. bring up in the book. And it's very different than I'm just a coach and I'm going to put online that I do psychedelic, uh, you know, psychedelic uh, therapy. Uh, you're saying, are you in a lineage? Are you in a, in a, in a group that can hold you accountable for outcomes That's and for, exactly right. you know, we, and that is, I think so important right now because we are, we've, we've seen ethic violations. We've seen that we know that these altered state experiences can bring up a lot of issues and particularly men that have been, uh, have, have had lots of problems with ethical violations around sexuality with MDMA and doing these. So we've seen this happen. So we've got to create uh, models that draw from these kind of wise elders that you're talking about here so that we can prevent kind of the shutdown that happened in the 70s where the whole thing went, you know, had to go, where they just shut it all down. And, right. and I, we just, I don't want that. 
These are beautiful medicines that have such promise for our planet. And I want to do it in a way that both honors the medicine, but honors the ethics and the containers in which they come in. Right. So I tell people, you know, if you're going to do a journey with someone, you have every right to ask them uh, questions about their own experience. Mm -hmm. how, how, how much experience do you have with this medicine? Who, who was your mentor? Mm. Um, who would you call in an emergency? Mm. If they don't do a complete medical interview screening, do not go to them. Yeah. Um, how many people will be in the group? You know, if, if, if they say 30, you, you know, you want to know how many people are responsible and helping. Yeah. And 30 is a big number. Mm -hmm. And um, you have every right to ask that question. Mm -hmm. And yeah. one of the women put it, you can ask, I don't think I included this in the book because I thought it was a little harsh, but now that I've been out with the book, I'm ready to get more harsh. <laughs> and she said, who authorized you to use this medicine? Ooh, yeah, that's an interesting. Was, I thought that was a good question. Yeah, you know what? That, cause that, that, you know, that personally hits me, right? It's like, Hey, how, as I, you know, as, as we are trying to build this model and, and do this work, that's a question I have to sit with, you know, who gave me the right to do this? Um, am I qualified? Um, you know, how do we build group containers that are safe, that are open to the sacred? Uh, how do we, you know, and I mean, I think you're, you're rightly, you know, I know that you're writing this book not to, to kind of shame people, uh, but is to encourage them to say, we've got to, we've got to look to these, these guides uh, as, as real, as real wisdom keepers, and they yeah. have answers for us. And so as we navigate the Western space, which is full of mental health challenges, you know, anxiety and depression and isolation and loneliness are out of control. And we look to these medicines to help, you know, restore our humanity. But we need to look to these kind of guys to say, how do we get long-term sustainable change? Not just like, yes, I can give you a mystical experience. That's easy. But can I give you a long-term sustainable change? Like when I lead men's groups, I say to these men, you know, we, we do groups of eight men and we have two facilitators and we go and we do, you know, we prep them for 10 weeks before the journey. But I say integration is about what do you like to live with? This integration must yeah, it has to impact. What do you like to do business with? What's your marriage like? How are you with your children? How are you with your internal voices? You know, the harshness, the critic, that's where integration really hits, right? It's, it's got to impact the relationships on our life. But if we, if you're just an individual going through an experience, it becomes so out of context, but if you're held in a container, uh, at least that container can begin to be a bit of a, uh, almost like a, a place where you have some responsibility, some accountability yes. in a yes. group container, right? Right, right. So some of the women I interviewed are complaining that people find them and they, they say, well, you know, I want to have a session with you and I'd like a mystical experience. <laughs> You're right. They're ordering a hamburger. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Yeah, with a little side of fries. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And so there has to be sort of an understanding that these medicines are part of life. And I talk about Albert Hoffman, who synthesized LSD. Mm -hmm. He lived to be 102 mm -hmm. and he took an LSD trip, his last one, when he was 97. Wow. So the medicines are part of life, different stages of mm -hmm. life, different initiations and preparations at mm -hmm. different stages. And, uh, and then integration follows that pattern across the whole lifespan. And the women tend to 
work with people over decades. So they know them, yeah. often work with their partners. Sometimes they're different generations in a ceremony. It, it becomes a part of life a ceremonial part of life mm. so it's not just this is going to change yeah. you yeah and there there is there is one report from this guy who went to peru to this really remote village and he came back and talked to his therapist who's a friend of mine and we just talked the other day and he said the man was disappointed that his he had the same personality <laughs> <laughs> it didn't change his personality. He, 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 won, he yeah. wanted to order a different personality. Right, right. And so our expectations have to be clear that we don't we don't get to just order up another personality, even if we spend two weeks in the jungle. It's how we work within ourselves, as you said, with our own inner voices and and our own relationship to the world mm, and our yeah. and our own lives. It's how we work with ourselves. Yeah, I had this, um, uh, you know, I'll just, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I've been married for 32 years and I have, I have four grown daughters in, in their 20s and they're, they're incredibly wise and, and uh, skilled and, you know, into their, in their life. And, and one of my oldest daughter is one of our, is, is helping facilitate uh, some of our groups. She's a somatic body worker and a massage therapist. And I, I say to her, I said, you know, the, the things that we're doing, they need to be vetted by, you know, by a community. And so I'm like, I say to my daughters, this has to land and make sense for you. Like, you know, from the ideas that I'm coming up with, if I have a trip and there's some insight that I have for my life, it's got, I vet it through my family and my daughters have to mm -hmm. kind of help me. Dad, I think that's right. I think this is an area where you need to, you know, do this, you know, this, this, you know, we, we affirm that, you know, this is an area where you need to grow. Through your relationships, that's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. yeah. And so I, I think that's, and that's what I found in your book is that so much of what, how these guides were working, where they were embedded in relational context. Yes both right. with the medicine and they yes. had an ongoing and you even talk about like a conversational relationship with oh, the yeah. medicine. You said oh, that yeah. you said they have, and I'll, I'll quote here. I think it's a quote here where I can find it here that they developed this, an ongoing conversational relationship with the medicine. You, you compared it to, uh, you know, Jung talked about his relationship that he had with Philemon, these conversations, this idea of inner intelligence being instructed, cultivating a relationship with the invisible other. Uh, yeah. Unpack that for me a bit because that is uh, that's something we I don't I've never heard at any psychedelic seminar about how to cultivate a relationship with an invisible other if you want to do this work. You know that's you don't hear it because it it springs out of the indigenous work with the medicines. Mm. It doesn't come from the um, neurological research. Right, uh, right. Yeah. Oh, that's just by you even saying that. They Neurological research. Yeah. 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 So many so, guys in psychedelic men get so right. fascinated by I am too. I'm interested in the 5H2A yeah, receptor sure. and what happens. Right. Right. But, but these guides, you're like, that doesn't really matter. It's what is your relationship to the medicine? Yeah. I yeah. The the phrase that I'm I sort of like right now is what do the plants want? Hmm. So that there's this inner sort of a guidance, but I, I can give you an example of a missed opportunity from, from one of the research teams. It happens to be Hopkins, but they did an internet study about, did you encounter an entity? 
on your trip. So an internet study gets a couple of thousand responses, big numbers, and they could divide them by what was the drug that you were on. So they had them by all the different drugs. Well, when when I did my research study, which I which was published in the Journal of Psychoactive Drugs in 2012, when I developed my questionnaire, I did what I was taught as a student when you develop a questionnaire, and that is you ask more experienced people about how what what are the right questions to ask. So I asked someone I knew well, who happens to be one of the elders I also interviewed a decade later, I asked her, and she said, the only question she recommended, she said, ask if they have an ongoing relationship with the spirit of ayahuasca. This is the foundation for the ayahuasca book, an ongoing relationship. So the Hopkins team asked, did you encounter an entity, a one-shot deal, no relationship? Mm -hmm. I asked, because of this elder, do you have an ongoing relationship with the spirit of ayahuasca? And then I asked, how do you communicate? How do you connect? And I got all kinds of interesting answers through meditation and my dreams. You know, when I'm relaxing, sometimes when I'm upset, I, you know, you get the sense of a living relationship, yeah. not just during ceremony. Right, right. Which is wow. Interesting in itself. Yeah. They're not, it's not the drug. They're not right. under the influence. So it's an ongoing relationship that this, the plant is in them. Right. And so, you know, here Hopkins does this big study, it's published, and they asked the wrong question Mm. because they did not consult one of the elders. And they could have, they could have reached, they Mm. could have reached the right people, but they didn't ask. Yeah. I think books like yours and your research, like what you're doing, is really opening up, you know, and, an opportunity for us to think differently, more holistically about, you know, the container these plant medicines come to us in, the lineage that they come from, and the type, the, the character qualities that we're really looking for in a guide. You know, you make the distinction rightly in a facilitator who, you know, might have one skill set to facilitate something versus maybe a space holder, someone who's sitting in the medicine space itself and, and holding that container. And those might be very different skills, you know, the, what you would bring in therapeutically, maybe the, you know, on, on, on that front versus the people that actually work with the energies right in the room when the medicine is happening. You, you actually talk about, um, you know, things like, um, you know, you, you, you mentioned Peter Levine, uh, somatic experiencing, uh, talked about, uh, Dr. Uh, Glennon, uh, which is around focusing. Um, you mentioned, you know, your, his work, embodied empathy, uh, somatic sensing, paying attention inwardly, tracking. These are, you know, these are concepts or skills that take a long time to develop because they're subtle and they're somatic. They're not cognitive. Uh, and, and I think, you know, uh, you, you're, you rightly point out that many of these guides are so not interested in your narrative. They don't seem to care that this thing happened. Not do they care. They care that something happened to you when you were a child, but they're less interested in the narrative that you formed about it. Is that, would that, is that accurate? Well, you know, I, you, you like the word tracking, and, and I want to say there's sort of a double tracking that goes on for a guide okay. and for a good therapist as well, is that they need to be tracking their own inner state, what's going on for them, one way is being aware. Uh, one just the, the 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 traditional term is being aware of their own countertransference. Yep. What's coming up for them? 
because whatever's unfinished in them is going to come up in one of these sessions for sure. I can, can count on it. Yeah. And the person, your client will know that you're disturbed. Yeah. If something's, they will know if you're triggered. So what's coming up for you? And then how do you separate your own inner work from what you're tracking in your client who's under a blanket with eye shades and ear, mm -hmm. ear, earphones? Yeah. How do you, how do you do that double tracking and yeah. keeping it separate? And that's quite a skill. And to have the flexibility to shift and to course correct and to be aware, oh, it, it, you know, the joke among therapists in private practice is our, our own issues walk in the door. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, how, you know, and that's the challenge for us to deal with our own unfinished business, our own unconscious. So you can count on things coming up. How do you deal with them in session while you're also tracking the person under the influence? Hmm. Yeah. So this, yeah. this is quite a challenge. Yeah. But and keeping your stuff out of their journey. Right. And, and yet being aware that, you know, if stuff is coming up for you, that this is your work to do, you know, exactly. that this you. is about you and, <laughs> and your reactivity is unfinished business that you haven't, you know, obviously resolved yet because it's clearly still triggering, triggering you. If the, if your client is bringing up stuff about, right. you know, their mother and you have this tenuous relationship with your own mother, it's right. this, the, there the, it the transference and it's going to just be exposed. Right. So, right. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's very you know, uh, it's fascinating. Jung, Jung used this word um, unconscious contagion was his phrase for this. And even um, Stan Groff talks about it in LSD psychotherapy, that the client will know they'll pick it up. There's a there's a contagion between the unconscious of the two people. Mm, so you yeah. can imagine when you ask about a group. Yeah. This the unconscious soup that's getting created yep. in that in that cauldron of people. And and there's some some guys ask, you know, should I should I take just a small dose so I can tune in better? And I tell people if your guy thinks they need to take a small dose to mm. tune in, they're not experienced enough. Right. Right. They should yeah. be able to shift consciousness to pick up where you are, to be yeah. able to to it, to move into your journey from yeah. themselves without any alteration. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's uh that's really that's really wise. And you know, my 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 wife's a, th a therapist and uh she's a you know a very intuitive um yeah, a very intuitive therapist. And so, but when it comes into medicine space, um, you know, her ability to track kind of what's going on emotionally, even without any verbal cues, right, is right. so helpful. You know, you talk about the soup, like we, we're working primarily in group context. And so we're trying to build this group mm -hmm. model. And when you get eight people, like, you know, we, we cap it at eight, but when you get eight people journeying, you can imagine all the different dynamics that are going on, both cross into the group with each other, then with their therapy, the, you know, the two guides, then the space holders. So you have all this energetic soup in the room, right? Well, you have to have, you, you talk about clearing, you know, we spend, you know, I, I, you know, we spend a lot of our time as guides really doing this clearing practice prior to going in so right. that we know what's going to come up. What's, you know, my, it can't, I can't just be hurry, hurry, hurry. And then I'll just do this medicine retreat. No, you, know? no, you have to prepare. Yes. Yeah. It's 
deeply, deeply spiritual prep work. And it's very, very sacred work. And, and I just clearing. feel like that's a, that's a piece that we're just not talking about much. And then clearing after. That's right. And developing Clean. rituals around yeah. that. Yes, right. And that's, uh, you talk and about that clearing, clearing process. Space. Yeah, clearing mm -hmm. the space. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, space. Let's talk about that because I mean, I, 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 the fact that um, you know, you bring up the idea that the actual space itself, the, the location, the land, the 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 building that you're in, all of that has energetic, you know, uh, elements to it, and that the the medicine is going to either, uh, uh, you know, that that can enhance or detract from the actual medicine work, from the actual plant work there. Um, and again, no one's talking about. Uh, how to clear a space and get it ready for this kind of altered state work. That just seems like an odd from a Western science view that why would you need to clear a space? It's fine. Just go rent a hall and do the work. Like, and, and yet these guides are saying, no, 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 you can't. That doesn't, it's not how it works. So how do you have that conversation with someone who says, let's just go rent a, you know, whatever. Uh, it doesn't matter where it's being done or how it's being done. Someone has to have worked with their own energy. They have to learn have to have learned themselves how to work with their energy in mm. order to understand that you clear a space and that the space is important. Mm. It's not going to come through in a conversation. Yeah, you'd have to actually experience that for first hand. Yeah, this is out of their own mm. their own apprenticeship, their own time working mm. with themselves and having lots of different experiences. I mean, I try and avoid saying this, but let me just translate what I'm saying. Do a lot of drugs. I am saying that. Yep. Work on yourselves. And I yeah. know it's not easy to get this experience. And it's not easy to take this time. And I'm I'm beginning I'm beginning to understand we're going to get a whole layer of ketamine therapists who will consider themselves to be psychedelic therapists with very little entheogenic experience, mm. a, a training program to use ketamine maybe online, maybe in person, a couple of journeys with ketamine. And that's a different animal. That's a different category. Yeah. They don't really, they're not really working with entheogens. I mean, ketamine is, is a dissociative. Right. It's not even a psychedelic. Even though they're calling themselves psychedelic therapists, they may or may not even have psychedelic experience. Hmm. So there's a lot of blurring of categories. What what are we really doing? How are we holding these medicines? These are the bigger questions. Yes, I, you know, I'm a researcher too. We need the data to show outcomes and we need cost-effective treatments, you know, to reduce the epidemic of depression and anxiety we have. But we also, our culture needs a way to carry these medicines. Mm. That's different from the medicalization and the reduction of symptoms. Mm other ways of carrying the medicines and the ketamine clinics that are popping up everywhere yeah. they're you know let's be clear that's not a psychedelic mm. yeah it might be a dipping the toe in the pool just to be able to get a little bit of you know as you said the dissociative i've worked with ketamine quite a bit um and so you know i understand both personally and how it works but you know, I moved away from ketamine for that exact reason. Um, we 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 started to build our model on ketamine because it was legal. We could get physicians involved and do it, but it wasn't taking me into the conversations I wanted to have, which were spiritual conversations. I mean, that was my background. 
that's where I felt comfortable. Ketamine didn't do that. It gives people a bit of a relief and it does have antidepressive categories, yeah, which is absolutely. great. Absolutely. That's you know? wonderful. It's and, a medical and particularly treatment. for suicide prevention, like someone in, I mean, my thing is if you are suicidal, just go get ketamine in a minute from now, just go, you'll get two weeks where you're not going to want to kill yourself automatically without any intervention. Right. And it it's, opens a different door. Exactly. Yeah. But it's not an entheogen. And then you rightly point that out. This is not a God. It's not going to be a God manifesting this divine sense of encountering your own divinity and having your whole being transformed. That's a very different kind of, uh, you know, gear that, that the, the typical entheogens like ayahuasca, right. psilocybin, right. you know, LSD have. Um, and so the, these are very different kind of, you know, gears. You, you talk a little bit about, um, you know, just, pulling, staying in that kind of the divinity within yourself uh, idea that we are more than just material bodies, bodies, we're these spiritual beings, we, we look at we look to our ancestors to understand uh, how they have worked with the divinity, uh, that the divinity is within ourselves, you, you mentioned, you know, P, uh, Teilhard de Chardin and his, his interior understanding of love, yeah, as right. this, what a beautiful thinker, he's been so helpful for me as a yeah. Christian thinker, to right. really bring this idea of non in the non-duality and the presence of love as the as really at the heartbeat of what this work is about. Yes, and we have to find a way to to hold the medicines with that with that attitude in that sacred way. Mm. Yeah, m most people aren't talking about how much love was present in that session? What, is, what does it mean to have, you know, an increase of love in my life? I mean, the Watts Connected Scale is probably the best we've got so far. Rosalind Watts has developed this 19 question, you know, where she talks about three categories, the connection with my interior life, the connection with others in relationships, and then the connection with the natural world or, or source or something larger. And that right. we can look at that in scale and say, hey, Am I moving toward more connection? I would just call that love. I mean, that's yeah. that's what love is, right? And we see an increase in that, right? Then we know that there's integration happening. That's exactly right. And that and it's that experience of being held like I think there's one quote from the NYU study being held like a, a child in the arms of God. Mm, I think this yeah. is from an atheist. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, any yeah, other way yeah. to say it. Yeah. Um, that that's it may it may or may not be a mystical experience it may or may not qualify for all the variables mm. but it's a very therapeutic healing experience mm. and i'm i'm really saying we as a culture need to learn how to hold these medicines in that same way with that love Rachel, I want to pivot a little bit to personal. You mentioned some of your experiences uh, in the book. And um, what, what for you were some of the personal transformations that you had while you were getting to sit with some of these amazing guides? Do you mind talking about some of the personal shifts that you, you experienced? I don't know how oh, you feel about that. I, I'd love to. <laughs> I'd love to. I mean, I, what I write about is I sort of got a contact high talking to some of them. Mm. And, and I, you know, I, I left one what was a whole day interview and I, I could barely drive home. Mm. I mean, so I, I, you know, my, I, I, I picked up an altered state of consciousness with no medicines involved, mm. just conversation. But after the whole book was written and, you know, all the conversations, um, I have to say that I have a shift a you know, I'm, I'm a tough cookie. So I have a shift in my attachment to 
causality to time and space to, you know, logical, rational thinking. There's, you know, these women have kind of helped me shift out of that to a to be far more accepting of a, an intuitive reality mm. and 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 a reality that's not so bound by the linearity of time and space. Mm. And so that's what I'm working on in my own process. That's what I that's what came out for me after all these conversations. And that's that the phrase that one of the women uses, that's what's working me. That's okay. what's cooking inside for me. Can, can you push that one step deeper? What is that? How does that translate into your life as you as you think of, if you move beyond kind of the causality and kind of that that framework that's maybe very Western and materialistic into this kind of a more open way of understanding the universe? Okay, how does that here's translate? What here's what I'm not saying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, there are historically many, many reports of anomalous experiences. Yeah. So whether it's parapsychological or all the experiences that John Mack wrote about with people being abducted by flying saucers. I mean, there are all these unusual experiences or the shaman talking about being married to a pink dolphin living in the bottom of the river. These things that don't make sense to us as Westerners, they don't fit our reality. But there's a loosening of my sense of reality um, where I can hear these experiences as true in a way that's um, a mythological truth or a visionary truth that, uh, that it can be real in a way that is not tied to, you know, cause and effect and material science yeah yeah so actually this morning i listened to um i'm going to recommend a different podcast okay. um new thinking aloud okay with uh jeffrey mishlove okay and he, these are my notes from this morning wow because yeah, i'm not computer literate enough to do it uh and and the author, he's very prolific. He's got a lot of books and he's a philosopher, so it's very dense. But this is an interest. The podcast, it's easier to get. Bernardo Castrop. Okay. And he's saying an experience can be symbolic and metaphorical and really, really true at the same time. Right, right, right. So it can be this unusual. I mean, you know, I've had experiences crossing the river Styx. Mm-hmm. And that's mm -hmm. true. Mm -hmm. And I'm still alive. Right, right. So it's true in a different way than yeah. our our concrete materialist yes. world. You know, Tolkien, J.R. Tolkien talks about myth uh, as, and C.S. Lewis picks up on this, that yes. myth is, is not something that's not true. It's something that's actually above truth. And what that means is it's Other truer way, yeah. than kind of logic. Yes, it's right. It, it's like a, a knowing that we have that moves beyond something that did this. Is this a verifiable fact? That's a very reductionistic kind of understanding You're of truth. You're exactly right on. Right? You're right on. Yeah. And so I think our Western world has to not be so limited by cause and effect. And if and you know the 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 high the physicists with you know quantum physics they're they're already there 
You know, they right. know it's not limited by just mechanical reality. So, but but our culture hasn't shifted into that bigger world, bigger way of thinking of things. And these women live in that world much more mm. than most of us. And so yeah. they pulled me out of this kind of reality into that a little bit more. Mm. And uh, that's my, that's what's working on me. That's that's beautiful. I, I think that uh, there's a thread there that you can pull that I, yeah. I think is going to have a whole bunch of uh, downlines as you explore right. that uh, right. in, in your and life. See, I, yeah. And see, you have a way of holding this already from from the from the Christian readings. Mm -hmm. Was Tolkien also Christian? Yeah. 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 So you have a way of holding and certainly um, Tired de Chardin, you have mm -hmm. a way of holding these other worlds. I mean, when he talks about the interior of the rocks yes. being alive and calling yes. to him. Yes. De Chardin. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, so it's another yeah, amazing. You know, I'm, I'm saying I'm kind, kind of trying to give you little loops of your own integration yeah. to this is a whole other way of bringing your history forward into this new world. Yeah. And that's so beautiful. Like I, I just read a book, uh, by a, a gentleman named John Philip Newell on it's called I think it's called Sacred Earth. It's all about Celtic spirituality and yeah, kind of place. yeah. And so again, here's this interesting uh, society that had early forms of Christianity untouched by Rome. So Rome couldn't right. control it. It's this island up in Ireland, and they had this interplay with the Druid, you know, very nature based uh, other world, other, other world. world. And they blended that synchronistically with Christianity so that you've got ideas of angels and spirits, though the spirit of the tree is also Christ and Christ shows up in the, you know, in the rock and the river. And so there's these hundreds of years of this Celtic tradition that are giving us a way forward to how to, how to reanimate the world again so that we begin to see that it's full of spirit that it's full of these kind of more magical, mythological ways of being. And uh, for me, one of the things that I'm really been kind of drawn into is how we in the West have really lost ritual, that we've lost communal rituals. We just are so individualistic in everything we do. So when Martin Luther, you know, nails his 95 thesis, we didn't realize the downline of that, of individual interpretation of the text, that like my, I get to look at the Bible and I get to say no to the Catholic, you know, all of that is this individual 500 years later that I said, it's me and it's, I heal as a lone individual. And we've lost this kind of larger collective that we actually heal in groups and community. And, and we in relationships. In relationships in relationship and right. so ritual provides a really interesting a gap right now that we see from our indigenous brothers and sisters and these shamanic practices they do them in ritual they do them in new moons they do them in full moons they do them at solstice they have you know they're, they, and they're part of life in an ongoing life. life yeah like can you imagine a world not 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 a psychedelic world of medicalization but but a world where the plant medicines are back into our world with rites of passage for you know fathers and sons to go out into the woods for when the coming of age at 18 that you go and have a big you know a psychedelic experience in the woods by yourself to become a man or mothers and daughters and in a moon cycle you know sitting with plant medicine together in circles you know with mums and 
and daughter. This is what good looks like in the future. It's these family connections. You know, we, my wife and I uh, just, just held space in a group for one of our daughters. Uh, she's, you know, in her twenties. And here we are uh, doing, you know, holding space while our daughter tra- journeys with a group of people and the, the impact of having the conversation after both prepping her and then talking with her after as parents, we get to be the guides for her. I mean, it blows my mind, the kind of connection and love that we get to experience because of plant medicine is a part of our family. That's what good looks like in the future. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. We I'm, need lots of these different ways of holding these medicines in our culture. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, Rachel, your your book is, uh, there's so many other areas where I can go into, but uh, I, I guess uh, I, I want to ask you, what, what are some of the things that you left that book, cha- you know, you said you had this personal experience, but how did this writing of the book change you and, and kind of what you're, what you're bringing to the world right now? How did it pivot you in your thinking? You- you opened this up by saying, you know, you felt the book was a voice in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I, my only, my only audience for the book was the women I interviewed. Mm-hmm. So before I gave the manuscript to my editor, I gave it to the women. Uh. And I only cared about what they said. Um, but I have, I do have a real commitment to honoring them and holding a place for them in in the world and that i hope can have some influence on how things unfold Mm, that's beautiful i i love uh i I love this book and uh, i'm gonna i want to go back through it because there's there's some real depth there particularly when you talk about you know so you want to become a psychedelic guide like (laughs) that whole chapter just made me laugh because it's like how many people just you know go to some seminars like yeah i'm gonna be a guide now right and and yet here here you just you go into that well let me tell you what these women have gone through to become the guides right Right. and it's decades of working interior you know in their life and then working in community and then having this ongoing relationship with the medicine uh you you right near the end of the book you talk about integration uh and you had this line where you were at an integration seminar and you ended up walking out it was oh, like yes. you said it was 11 o'clock and i'm like i'm done I, and it was you a all day seminar right. I, I almost never walk out i walked out and why just what t- tell us what was going on there for you they didn't have enough they didn't have enough clinical experience they had mm. barely psychedelic experience, but they didn't even have enough clinical experience to be talking about integration. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And it's as a matter um, of fact, I think that's I, I think I've walked out of two things in my 40 year career. That was mm. one of them. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And and again, for you, uh, as you talk about integration, you, you talk so much about this relationship. Um, are you in relationship, you know, with this, uh, not just with the medicine, with other people? Who's your supervisor? Who, you know, um, how, how are you getting these downloads that you get the insight? Who is vetting that with you? Is that just you by yourself going, I got this download that now told me I'm going to be X, Y, and Z. What right. community does this land in that can help you be a hermeneutical or, or a governing framework for your ideas, right? And it, I think this concept of integration is massive. And for me, one of the answers that we're trying to put forward is what if you had a group? 
what if you had at least move outside of your own individual as I'm the sole, you know, captain of my own little ship? What if you began to, to kind of submit yourself to the power of the group dynamic, that your insights and integration will be vetted through a group of people? And that seems to really have helped as, I, as we've tracked this over the last two years and, and just starting with this, we've got, we're starting to build a community of people that are working with these medicines and vetting it with one another. And I think that's kind of what you're trying to, to so, at least encourage. Dare I say yeah. you're building a church community? <laughs> you know what? It's uh, Rachel, you're not the first I mean, one I don't who want to accuse that. you of anything. No. <laughs> uh, you got me. You know what I mean? Like I It's like, so. I don't know what other language I can put on it. And I'm avoiding it. Like, I'm, I'm being honest with you well, right now. Is like, as you say that, there's a part of me that bristles because mm -hmm. uh, I don't want to call anything church. But yet, right. I don't know. What other word can I term it but a spiritual community of seekers that want to sit in community with one another and vet these, their divine encounters they've had, uh, and, and yet do it in a community, right? And serve well, one the, another. The Quakers call it a meeting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's an option. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's a meeting. I'm, I'm, uh, so yeah, I know you, you're, you're, you're right to kind of say, hey, I hear your passion. You have a passion to build these kind of communities. Sure. Yeah. And, yeah. and this is your own process of integration. And, and, you know, what the, what the women look for, they're not looking for symptom reduction. They're not giving questionnaires, you know, at the end mm -hmm. of the, right. Like the research protocols, but they're looking for how do you change your life and, and how, how are your relationships evolving? How are you living up to your calling? Mm, so wow. you still have a calling. <laughs> yeah. You can feel that, eh? Well, listen to your passion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, uh, yeah. yeah. E even that phrase that you just said, Rachel, it just struck me as like you. You said how to change your life. You didn't say how to change your mind, right? No. I mean, no. how to change your mind is the most popular book on psychedelics. And thank you for you know in, in writing it. Beautiful. Michael Pollan has done a great yes, service right. to right. our country. You know, to, and to I the, think he yeah. had about five or six journeys when he wrote the book. Right, right. <laughs> so, but you talk about how to change your life. That's yeah. different than just, that's you know, what the women look for. they look for transformation. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's powerful. And I, and that can only be done in long term. Like that's not just, you know, Hey, I had, a, I had my little trip last week and now I'm done and I'm good. Like I got my oil changed or something. Right. This is an ongoing process of being in relationship to, you know, the, the, the divine an ongoing process yeah, that's yeah. unfolding. Yeah, yeah. Rachel, is there anything else? I mean, this has been a fun conversation. And I, <laughs> no, I really, I'm not saying anything else. <laughs> you're like, I've said a lot. I've said enough. <laughs> right. Oh, well, it's been uh, really great. And again, uh, we've been talking today with Rachel Harris and uh, you have uh, been, an, you've just been an incredible author here. And this book, Swimming in the Sacred, I really want to recommend to people. Um, this is a, a book that's really going to push you if you're interested, not just in psychedelics for yourself, but you're interested in how to get involved in this work. This is a, a really important corrective uh, for many of us in the field that begins to ask questions that we're just not hearing addressed. So Rachel, thank you so much for taking the time to do this work and to all those hours of, of researching and interviewing those guides. Um, it's, uh, it's, yeah, I just want to say thank you on behalf of all of us for putting this work out into the world. It's really needed right now. <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs>